Hello listeners, this is Tosha. Before we start this episode on physician-assisted suicide, we felt it was important to mention a few things first. The conversation with our guest was surprising and extremely complex. There is so much said in our conversation that we wanted to share with you all, and also so much that was left unsaid. Still, after discussing with our team, including conferring with KUCR station management and our campus compliance officer, we ultimately decided to share this episode with a few select edits, which we rarely do. In our effort to explore the controversial and complex discussions in our field, it can be difficult to balance potentially triggering material, everyone's differing opinions on the subject, and the responsibility of educating in a public space. We hope our conversations stimulate your own dialogue with these topics and you ask yourself where you stand on these issues. We recognize that the subject matter of suicide can be triggering. If you or someone you know is having thoughts of suicide, help and support is available. One of the messages we want to communicate today is that the intense thoughts and feelings a person experiences that leads to thoughts of suicide can be successfully treated. If you feel backed into a corner, seek help. Even if past help hasn't worked for you, how you feel could change quickly. There's a way forward for you. And with the right help, you can get to living your best life. Life experiences are out there that you haven't had yet. And there are people in this world who need you, even if you haven't met them yet. If you're a UCR student seeking help, please call UCR's Counseling and Psychological Services at 951-827-5531. And for anyone out there who's having thoughts of suicide, call the National Suicide Hotline at 1-800-273-8255. That's 1-800-273-8255. Get connected with the help you need or help a friend or family member connect with the help and support they deserve. And now here's our show. Hello and welcome to Let's Get Psyched, a program that explores the controversial and challenging issues from a psychological and psychiatric perspective, as well as the implications for clinical practice. I'm your host, psychologist Dr. Aaron Parks of the University of California, Riverside's Counseling and Psychological Services. I'm joined by my co-host, child and adolescent psychiatrist, Dr. Toshi Yamaguchi. Hi, Toshi. Hi. And third-year psychiatry resident, Dr. Alan Atkins. Hi, Alan. Greetings, everybody. The views expressed on Let's Get Psyched are those of the speaker. They do not represent the University of California, UC Riverside's Counseling and Psychological Services, or UCR's School of Medicine. Well, on today's show, we're going to talk about the assisted suicide device, the Sarcopod, uh, with our special guest, Dr. Philip Nitschke. Dr. Nishke is an Australian author, has a PhD in physics, is a former physician and founder and director of the pro-euthanasia group Exit International. He campaigned successfully to have a legal euthanasia law passed in Australia and assisted four people in ending their lives before the law was overturned. Dr. Nishke was the first doctor in the world to administer a legal voluntary lethal injection, after which the patient activated the syringe using a computer. Dr. Nishke is the inventor of the Sarcopod, a 3D printed euthanasia machine. Dr. Nishke, thank you for joining us on Let's Get Psyched. Well, thank you. Very pleased to. Uh, yeah, can can you tell me uh, about how this came about? What, why did you feel the need for this? Uh, you know, you, you are a founder of Exit International. Kind of came maybe out from that work. Can you can you can you start off with that? Yeah, a little bit of background, I suppose. As you indicated, my background has been in physics, and when I when I first got involved in the idea of uh, a legislation to help a terminally ill person to die back in 1996 in the Northern Territory of Australia. A law did pass, and then it uh, because I was one of the few doctors supporting the idea, people had come along and said, I want help to die, and the question 
of course, immediately came up, well, how are you going to go about it? And the law allowed me to go around there and give a drug by intravenous injection. Uh, and we decided that perhaps it would be a good idea to work out which drug and how that could be done. But the process worried me a little in the sense that I didn't feel comfortable with the idea myself of being the deliverer of the drugs. It seemed to me that, okay, I was passionate about a person's right to have this option, but having decided that they had this option, I could see no reason why they shouldn't be able to do it themselves, provided I made it possible. So I built a machine so that I didn't have to sit alongside the patient and actually push the plunger of the syringe and allow the drugs to flow intravenously uh, the barbiturate we were going to use, pentobarbital, flow intravenously and end the person's life. I built a laptop computer. It was a, it was effectively a modification of Jack Kevorkian's device. I'd been following the activities of Jack Kevorkian quite closely. I thought mine was a rather more high-tech version of his rather, uh, rather it seemed rather basic model, but basically it was just a syringe driver with a switch. The laptop presented a few questions saying basically three times, do you know what you're doing? Do you know what you're doing? Do you know what you're doing? And if you press this the last time, the syringe driver allows the drugs to flow. So that little device became known as the deliverance machine, uh, and it was used by four people. So in a sense, I didn't actually give the injection, although I loaded the machine. I put the cannula in the vein. I did all the stuff. But the fact was it seemed to me that it effectively turned it from what we would describe as euthanasia into a situation of assisted suicide because I was doing the assisting, but they were pressing the button. And that was important to me for a couple of reasons. For one thing, it showed that it was not some, uh, some uh, malevolent doctor doing something to a moribund patient, uh, but it also had another really important effect, and that was that it, it got me out of that personal space of the person. It allowed other people to come in. And so in the first person who used it, which was a person called Bob Dent dying of prostate cancer, his wife could hold him. I loaded the machine. I sat on the other side of the room. He pressed the button when it said the third time, if you press this button, you will die. He pressed the button and died in his, wife, in his arms of his wife. And I thought, well, that's good. Uh, the machine allowed me out of the picture so that she could be there where people should be, the people who were close to the person. So that gave me, I suppose, some experience in this idea. I like The machine I thought was quite a good idea. Uh, it then had a rather protracted, a rather difficult time because it was acquired by the museum once the law was overturned. There's no subsequent use for a secondhand euthanasia machine. I didn't know what to do with it. The museum, the biggest museum in Australia, wanted it. Suddenly there was a huge outcry. And then, it, then I was approached from London and they said, we want the machine here. So I was only too glad to take it across to London. And it sits there looking resplendent in a glass case now as a deliverance euthanasia machine circa 1996. And it gave, and it gave me some uh, exposure to this idea, which led to the approach about uh, building a new machine. So you made the machine 3D printable. Was no, that? This is the second machine. See, that, that, that was the first machine was the deliverance machine. And then I was approached uh, about six years ago uh, by the lawyers for a, for a person who was dying in London and saying, can you build another machine uh, which would uh, help a person who is seriously disabled? This case, a person called Tony Nicholson in London, who was about to take the British uh, law to court on the basis that he could not suicide. He's saying his rights to end his life that an able-bodied person has, that is suicide, it's not a crime. His ability to suicide had been seriously limited by his disability and he wanted a machine, or his lawyers did, say, could you build another machine that didn't require 
some uh, expertise in the form of putting intravenous cannulas in and getting uh, heavily restricted drugs, something that was simpler. And that's where the idea came of using gas, uh, using uh, hypoxia as the process. And, uh, of course, that, that, that makes things a, a couple of things easier because you're not trying to get difficult to obtain drugs. And also, uh, if you're breathing, if you're alive, you're breathing. So it doesn't, this question of administration of the drugs is somewhat simplified. So that's where the idea of building a machine which will allow a person to die peacefully using an inert gas came about in this event. So I got that idea about six years ago. It's taken a long time to get to the stage we're now at. Uh, Alan, did you get your question answered? I'm all good. Okay, I, I have a question. Um, I, when I first learned about Exit International, I had learned about it, I think, from the New York Times or something, and they had done uh, a piece where they were talking to specific, I forgot the word, but it's kind of like doulas, but for death. Hmm. What What are they called in Exit Oh, uh, well, hang on. I'm not too sure that we're involved in doulas for death. I, I mean, I, I'm i not too sure where... Like they sit with the person who's dying? No, I, we haven't been terrible. I mean, my main involvement these, day, these days is, first of all, to make the whole process possible. Uh, and so we spend a lot of our time making sure that we know how, easy, how it can be made into a way which is sort of user-friendly, for want of a better term, and making sure that people know exactly what they're doing so that they can then take this step. The idea of in fact, processes that actually require someone in the form of providing some sort of expertise is not really the sort of thing that we are particularly interested in. I want to make it so that people can actually take this step themselves. So that's what Exit's been doing, uh, and we've been uh, relatively successful in getting numerous strategies for people to take this step effectively and reliably to stop people effective, stop people having to stand in front of trains, for example, by knowing more about what it is they're trying to do and how they can go about doing it. That often focuses on the acquisition of difficult to obtain drugs, which drugs work, which drugs don't, why they work and how to make sure that you don't make mistakes. Okay. I might've read that wrong, but um, the point was I thought that uh, part of the, article talked about part some of the ceremonies uh, around the, um, the the death itself um, and what you just spoke about I mean that's really interesting to me are, are there any other experiences that you've seen that you know uh, of how people choose to do this look I, the the idea originally how they I arrange did. their you know, can you, make a, can you make a machine that does this was the first uh, thing. And so I, while I was while we were deciding on how we could do this, it did occur to us that we should try to make the whole process a little bit more attractive. Uh, the idea, which is currently now, for example, if you uh, get some help to die, if you, for example, come to Switzerland, you'll be put in some sort of windowless room. You'll be lying on a plastic sheet and you'll be staring at the ceiling and some stranger will come along with a white coat and get a needle into your arm. Uh, and uh, wow. these these places are in the industrial estates uh, on the outskirts of the bigger cities because they can't be placed anywhere else. So that all didn't sound particularly attractive to me, and I know a lot of people who make use of these services are still pretty pleased that they are available, but they would, I think, deserve something a bit better than that. So the idea of making Sarko as a 3D printable desirable object, that is an object of art almost, to give you the idea that you're travelling, which can then be put in your idyllic location, uh, so that, that you can make choose this time, this most important day of your life, the day you die, 
to be an act of some form of celebration with a stylish and elegant piece of equipment, uh, into a, turning it into an act of, uh, into a ceremony, if you like. So that's the mm-hmm. goal. The one that I had heard specifically was it was like they kind of orchestrated their own funeral. They had a, almost like a party where their friends and family were there with them through the process. Yes, well, that's certainly going to be the case. I mean, you can you can have a party now, I suppose, but it's a little harder when you're stuck in the industrial estates, one of the Swiss cities. So, I mean, no, this makes it a little bit easier. I think the sense of occasion is important. I think some of the, like a couple of the biggest issues here, uh, Dr. Nishki, is the idea of unintended consequences from making this uh, so readily available and accessible to folks. Um, and uh, just, uh, you know, is, is this a public health issue? Is suicide a public health issue and how much should the government be involved? Uh, and and just at how, how you know, Who's, who's making this decision or who is preventing this decision to be made for someone to end their life? And I, I want to kind of get your takes on the, on these three things. Well, you know, there's a couple of issues here. I mean, I, we, as I said, we're involved in the idea of developing or providing information about, if you like, methods. And the contrast can be made here, I think, between the uh, recent increase in interest in the use of some of the newly used uh, substances people take to end their own lives that have spread uh, widely around the world and, uh, and, and the information has bled out of uh, into groups of people who we don't think necessarily should have access to this information. These are younger people who are suffering from all sorts of uh, momentary disruptions to their life who are accessing some of these rather easy-to-obtain substances. Now, those substances have been the subject of a lot of review, and just recently you may be aware there's about to be legislation passed in some of the states in the US to prevent the sale and distribution of some of these very common salts that can be used in this way. Now, how much responsibility I take for that, I don't know. We realised that it was risky. We restrict the publication as best we can to people that are over the age of 50 and of sound mind, and you can imagine how hard that is. I think that's a a really good point, Um, and it it kind of brings me back to what Tosha said. Tosha was talking about, you know, having your own funeral or parties or, um, you know, other ways of having support. All of those things, I think, would mitigate impulsivity, and it would be much harder to picture a patient um, who was maybe we feel shouldn't die, who's who's in a corner and can't see around the edge, but there's treatment and their life could be much better. Um, you know, getting this device, finding a physician to, to operate it, figuring out how to do everything. And then I think that the whole device is kind of built around the idea that you might have other people around and the other people. I think that's a huge barrier to an impulsive, wrongful death uh, by suicide where that, that that we're worried about in our patients. Um, and, I, you know, I can't necessarily say the same for for something that is probably just as easy to attain in our country, which is guns. Mm. Yeah, well, I mean, we've been, we've been interested in making use of the, the psycho to try and give an extra option to the two processes which are now currently used in Switzerland, which are the intravenous uh, administration of pentobarbital or the oral drink. Uh, the idea of using an inert gas made, made a lot of sense for people that are worried about vomiting, people that are worried about needles, people that are, uh, and people who don't like lying necessarily in the industrial estate outside of some Swiss city. So the idea of making it a much more uh, flexible approach, something that was a bit more attractive and perhaps desirable. I don't think that necessarily makes suicide desirable, but what it does is provide 
another option. Uh, distributing the information about how to make a sarco, look, it's not going to affect very many people. Uh, and it's hard to imagine there's going to be a lot of people who perhaps shouldn't be taking this course going to the trouble to do this. Um, but I think it, it does it does strike a chord with a lot of people. We've got a huge number of people who want to use a sarco, and some of them have got some pretty compelling reasons. And when we make it available as one of the other options that you might use, we won't have much trouble, I don't think, finding people who want to take this step. Uh, if you're just joining us, you're listening to KUCR on uh, the show Let's Get Psyched, and we're talking about assisted suicide and the Sarko Suicide Pod with Dr. Philip Nitschke. Um, Dr. Nitschke, I, I, yeah, yeah, I, I think that there's you're going to get a lot of, like you were saying, there's a lot of popular kind of support for the idea of, of ending your life if you have a terminal illness and, and your incredible suffering and, and making that uh, you know death with dignity laws that we've passed here in California. I think there's a lot of support for that, but yeah, I, I, you know, I, I, I'm just going to return to some of my thoughts about the unintended consequences. You know, you you bring up these examples of folks that uh, you know you can make it easier for them uh, with with the sarcopod and and things like that. But uh, you know, w- when you look at statistics of every time when suicide is easier, every time when suicide is made easier, other folks can access those means or uh, use that to kill themselves. Uh, and yeah, again, ninety percent of suicide attempters regret it. I mean, when they when they changed the formulation, the chemical composition of the gas that was leading, you know, to to, to British folks, much less people died because there were a lot of people who were killing themselves with gas. And and, and I, I, as a, from a public health perspective, I think that's great that uh, you know that, that a lot of suicide was prevented. But you know, I don't I, I, I don't see how like you if if you're going to make it, you're going to democratize the idea of of making it easy and facilitate the process. I can see how you're targeting the terminal folks, but how do you, what, what, what are you doing to compensate or to account for these, uh, the unintended consequences of making suicide easier? Well, as I said, I'm quite happy to to coexist in the in in the legislative environment of a country like Switzerland, which has got its own criteria here, and I think they're quite satisfactory. We don't get too many teenagers coming into Switzerland seeking uh, seeking to end their lives now. They have to satisfy certain criteria, and those criteria are the two that I mentioned. They've got to be adults and they've got to be of sound mind. Um, Now, we've tried to demedicalise the process in a sense because the requirement uh, of establishing that you're of sound mind in Switzerland requires the involvement of the medical profession currently, but it's also a need to have involvement of the medical profession to prescribe access to the heavily controlled substances that are used. Now, uh, one of our the, the idea of psycho helps there because you don't need a doctor to prescribe the substances. The other criteria, though, the medical involvement to determine whether a person has mental capacity, we're also working on the process there whereby we can use artificial intelligence to screen a person to see whether they have uh, what we would describe as a rather ethereal quality of mental capacity. And the idea there will be that the person will do the test uh, the intelligence test, and if they pass, will be issued with the four-digit pass, which allows the Sarko to work for the next 24 hours. So we'll be told, it, this is this is somewhat futuristic because we haven't got anywhere near that stage yet. And I talk to a lot of psychiatrists; most of them tell me this is never going to happen. But I mean, there's a lot of people in medicine say things are never going to happen because of artificial intelligence, which are having to re- revise their opinions a little bit uh, as things move on. So I'm not too sure it's never going to happen, but it is a it is an ambition goal but right now you will have to have some involvement 
with some medical professional to determine that you've got this ethereal mental capacity before you can take this next step. Do you feel like um, the ultimate decision, let's say, let's say that a, a physician or a, or a psychologist, psychiatrist says that, uh, uh, you know, my opinion, this suffering is due to depression that can be treated. Do you feel like the ultimate decision should be with the the, with the patient, with the person, with the individual, or do you feel well, like? I th- I, well, I think the, the answer to that is the question really is much more fundamental. The question is, does this person have mental capacity? Now, they may well have depression. The question is, are they so depressed that they've lost their so-called mental capacity? Now, I, I know this is a rather this is a rather vexed concept in medicine and in psychiatry about when do you suddenly achieve this uh, this magical goal? And of course, the the, the height of the height of the uh, goalpost or the, the height of the barrier seems to vary a lot when you're looking at which particular mental capacity we're looking at. The mental capacity that you've got to have before you're determined to be guilty for a crime is pretty low. I mean, everyone who walks around in society, if they go off and shoplift, they're generally considered to have enough mental capacity to know that they shouldn't have done it. But to establish that you've got the mental capacity to end your own life seems to require some sort of extremely difficult assessment process, which only psychiatrists can provide. I'm sceptical of this. I've seen too many people getting different opinions from different medical professionals about whether they have mental capacity. And I've seen too many people then say, what the hell am I having to go through this process for and shop around till I find someone who thinks that I know what I'm doing. And that causes issues. So I think in some ways that I'd be happier with an artificial intelligence assessor rather than uh, the, the rather idiosyncratic approach brought to this vexed issue by people carrying their own baggage on this issue. And that's my concern over the involvement of the medical profession in that in that aspect. But that is always going to be a criteria. When I say always going to be a criteria, that well, we're not going to talk about the other project about dementia. But the, the, as far as the sarco is concerned, the criteria is that you must have mental capacity, and you're going to have to have it established one way or another before you get near the device. Um, along these lines, I wanted to uh, ask you. I'm, I'm sure you've heard about those websites where users can post you know anonymous anonymously how do i um, kill myself and people can post in response you know you could try this you could try that and then some people are even uh live live streaming their attempts um and then people are sending you know words of encouragement to them while they're live streaming this what are your thoughts on that oh and then you know yeah the new york times recently did an article about this i don't think they named the website on purpose but um they said almost half i think are you know under 25 years old or something like that yeah, we do. We almost half of the users. Sorry, I don't. I don't think I said that. No, we're we're, we're very aware of a uh, number of websites, and we have, a, uh, in some ways, we we monitor the situation quite closely because we find material uh, that we're involved in uh, being uh, pilfered, if you like, stolen. I indeed know about the New York Times article you're referring to. Uh, there's a lot of feedback uh, that uh, that took place on the chat rooms after the publication of that article. I monitor it quite closely because it has impact on us. And we try to work out what we can do about this and we have no easy answers to it. Uh, now, my but my personal view is that if you're an adult and you make a rational decision to die, you should have that option. It shouldn't be made difficult for you. Now, 
okay, that means, uh, does that mean if you're over 18, that's an adult? And I think to myself, well, that's pretty young, but we're quite happy as a, as a society to give guns to 18-year-olds and tell them to go over to other countries and kill people. Uh, that's quite all right. But we seem very reluctant to allow the same individuals, those same 18-year-olds, to have access to the information which would allow them to be able to kill themselves. Now, I don't feel too comfortable by that. Our own organisation, which my organisation, Exit, that I set up, tends to try and restrict access to our members, our average membership age, by the way, is 75, to people that are over the age of 50. But uh, in a philosophical sense, I don't uh, necessarily think that rational people, adults, should have obstacles placed in their way if they decide to divest themselves of their life. Uh, Now, that's rational people. The so-called concept of rational suicide, which causes so much trouble and argument within the medical profession. Okay, but how do you square the the research that ninety percent regret it? Well, I mean, people know that. I mean, they're rational people. They know that when they kill themselves, they might regret it, but they still decide to take the step. Now, we all take steps that we might regret, and we also take steps which we know we might at some later stage, regret, but we make decisions to do things. Now, I'm just saying that uh, people should not have unnecessary obstacles placed in their path if they make this rational decision to do it. But this idea that anyone who thinks of ending their life must be suffering from some possibly undiagnosed mental malady, which just needs to be teased out. In other words, that there's no such thing as a rational request to die, just does not fit my experience. Yeah, that seems like uh, yeah more of an extreme position, but it's but it doesn't it sound like you know the fact that you know the you know, young folks like you're saying eighteen or over young folks people are rational. Um, you're philosophically you're thinking that you know they should be allowed to make that decision, but doesn't the fact that you know when the when you analyze this that they were suffering from a temporary acute issue and you you yeah. If, if, I mean, if well, that's right, if they were suffering from this temporary, temporary, but this is a permanent solution to a temporary acute issue, right? And they, and that's right, and they seem to be in no way able to understand or assess that issue, and so they possibly should be prevented from taking that course. That's possibly true. I, look, I can't argue against that. But what I'm saying is that that the argument that the information might bleed should be used then as a reason why no one should have access to this information does not fit comfortably with the thousands of exit members who are in their 70s who say this is my absolute fundamental right to have access to these drugs or to have access to something like the Sarko. They want the drugs. They believe they had every right to have the drugs and they don't believe that just because someone might misuse them some 20-year-old somewhere or other might misuse them, that that should be used as a reason why no one can have access to these drugs. Now, we've just seen uh, in response to these uh, chat rooms that you've described, and we don't know, and uh, so, of course, I feel worried about the fact that people are saying that you're responsible for the deaths of a lot of people. Uh, Having said that, I also know of a large number of people, elderly people, that are immensely comforted by the knowledge that they have access to the substances that they can keep in the cupboard, hoping they'll never use it, but knowledge, having the knowledge that they will, if they need to, have this option available to them. Now, it's very hard to try and balance these two competing interests here. If you've got large numbers of uh, elderly people feeling happier, more comfortable, and probably living longer because they've got this issue addressed with a bottle of something in the cupboard, which they've been able to access, is how do you balance that against the, sh- the, the shortening of the life 
of the person who acts irrationally because they've got access to this data. I feel that the balance seems to be rather unfortunately moved away so that no one gets access to the information. That leaves a lot of trapped elderly people. Can we agree that um, the it would be good to ha- help folks, young, younger folks like you're talking about, that maybe it's they're going through a temporary acute issue. Younger folks have access to the information to become well and live happy. Can we can we agree on that? Absolutely, absolutely. Of course, they should be able to. We should we should encourage them to do this. Uh, if, however, if however they have made a sound rational decision that they wish to divest themselves of their life, they should have no obstacles placed in their way. That's why. Yeah, that's why I disagree. Yeah, I, it, it sounds like. I, I mean, I, I do have to say, in, in all of the, you know, uh, our, our all three of our jobs are largely to intervene on folks who who are thinking about trying to end their lives or who have tried to end their lives. And I have yet to see someone who has used your resource or a similar resource to try to end their life. And, and much more often um, just seen them reach for whatever's around and our, our world is full of lethal means. Um, and that gives me some comfort that maybe the efforts you're putting in are, you know, maybe going towards what you're intending them to um, do you see yourself in the era of, you know, J- Julian Assange and Edward Snowden with like an indelible um, quality to information once it's released, kind of like snow, um, p- plowing over countries that are trying to suppress this, um, like a kind of like an information pirate? Well, I don't know about it being, I mean, obviously I've got the greatest admiration for Snowden and Assange uh, myself, because I believe that the uh, distribution of that information has made the well has made the world, God knows, difficult as it is, a slightly better place because we know what's actually going on and we can better assess the people that are carrying on in these ways. Now, in terms of my own issue about making sure that people have access to good information so that they know what they're doing, I find that argument pretty compelling. And people say, well, if, if they know what they're doing and they know about the permanence of death and we do everything we can to say that you don't really want to do this, do you? And they still decide that they want to do it. Then they should know that doing this is a peaceful and reliable way to die. I don't particularly want them to walk around there and decide to take this step without knowing things, because that's when we see these rather, rather macabre and bizarre ways that people decide to take this course. So, Giving good information, I think, is a sign of a healthy society. Will there be more suicides? Well, I don't know whether there'll be more suicides. I know there'll be a hell of a lot, ha- a hell of a lot more happy elderly, elderly people if they had their own bottle of substances in the cupboard because they want it and they would feel better and, well, as I said earlier, live longer, something that needs to be taken account of because they're less inclined to have this panicky, precipitous, desperate action when they feel they're trapped with no other option. Having an option, knowing you've got this choice, is uh, compatible with longevity. It doesn't necessarily shorten life. And I would like to see a society where access to these substances was much more readily available. I am not convinced that would we see an overall reduction in the net longevity of the human race if this were the case. And that's all the time we have for this edition of Let's Get Psyched. Today we talked about assisted suicide and the suicide sarcopod with Dr. Philip Nitschke. Dr. Nitschke, thank you for joining us on this episode. Oh, thank you. 
And also thank you to our co-hosts, Drs. Toshi Yamaguchi and Alan Atkins. If you or someone you know is having thoughts of suicide, help and support is available. One of the messages we want to communicate today is that the intense thoughts and feelings a person experiences that leads to thoughts of suicide can be successfully treated and you can learn to live a life that brings you joy and satisfaction. If you're a student and you need help, please call UCR's Counseling and Psychological Services at 951-827-5531. For anyone out there, you can also call the National Suicide Hotline at 1-800-273-8255. That's 1-800-273-8255. Get connected with the help you need or help a friend or family member connect with the help and support they deserve. You can also uh, listen to past episodes of Let's Get Psyched on your favorite streaming platform. And if you have comments or questions or suggestions for the show, you can write us at getpsyched on KUCR at gmail.com. If you like tonight's show, please follow us and post a review. This episode was recorded remotely in our homes. Our producer is Elliot Fong. Our production assistant is Benjamin Metrican. I've been your host, psychologist, Dr. Aaron Parks. Tune in next week for another edition of Let's Get Psyched.